Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Grab a seat. Everybody enjoying the bitter cold? Everybody's pipes working properly? Not frozen? No, half and half. Um, this morning we're about to begin a new series, and we're about to look through the book of Jeremiah. And I'll share in just a moment what we're going to be looking at from it. But one aspect of it reminded me of uh, several years ago when I was teaching a class over at Cairn. Uh, from time to time, Cairn has had me come and teach classes usually in one of two categories. Usually it's either in the counseling realm or it's in theology. And this happened to be a theology class, and it was Tuesday mornings, bright and early. It was the earliest it could be on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings. And it was for a semester, and it was a class I hadn't taught before. And so as I was teaching it, it had an eclectic group of students, people with all sorts of backgrounds, and and, uh, it was a lot of fun. And it was one of those classes that really only worked if you had everybody participating. So it was the type of thing where you didn't necessarily sit in rows. We most of the time sat in a circle, and we would discuss various theological topics from the theology side of things and also from the application side of things. And uh, it, it was a profitable class, but one of the things that I noticed partway through the semester is that I had a student in that class who was always chronically late, no matter what. So late to attend, late to turn papers in, always late, no matter what. And uh, I started noticing this, and I talked to him a little bit about it during the semester, and I said, hey, uh, uh, you know... What's the deal? Like, the class is an hour and a half long. You were 30 minutes late today. And he said, yeah, I know. I, you know, I, I, I take a train, and, you know, sometimes if I miss the initial train, then I have to take another one. I'm like, okay. I was like, well, yeah, just kind of be mindful of that, because too many lates, it starts to affect your grade. You're graded partly on participation in this course. And the semester went on and continued with lateness, and, and then his papers would come in, but they'd usually be a week or two after they were due, and at the very end of the semester, I gave him his grade, and he passed the course, but he got a C, and he came to me and he said, I got a C? How did I get a C? And I said, well, all along this semester, look at how much time you've missed, and look at how late all of these things were, and this was his response to me. He's like, yes, but I told you why I was late and why I turned those, in, those things in when I did. And I said, yes, you did. You did tell me why you did those things. However, your excuses don't add up to a good grade. It just, it's like, okay, I accept that you had a reason for being late all those days. I accept that you always miss the train. I accept that you... Uh, Turn your paper in two weeks late. I, I, I acknowledge that those things happen. I'm hearing you. However, it affects your grade. And I bring that up because the portion of Scripture we're looking at today from Jeremiah chapter 1 is a portion of Scripture that I, I think speaks about excuses. But one of the things that it invites us to do by way of example as we look at what the Lord's doing here in Jeremiah's life and what he's setting him up to do is to stop giving God our excuses. So if you're like me, and I think we're all in the same boat on this, there are certainly seasons in my life, and I'm sure seasons of your life, where 
the Lord has implored us to go in a certain direction or say something in particular or do something in particular. And sometimes the Lord delights to stretch us because he wants your faith and my faith to grow. He wants us to learn to trust him more and more in every context of life. And he doesn't hesitate to, to commission us to do hard things or to experience hard things. That doesn't bother God at all, to put something difficult in my path or your path when it's going to stretch our faith and ultimately help our trust in him to grow. So he does that, but a lot of times when the Lord's trying to stretch us in healthy ways and trying to use our lives in ways that, that ultimately will bring glory to him and benefit to other people and even benefit to ourselves, frequently, instead of saying yes as our first response to the Lord, one of the things that we, by nature, sometimes do is our first response that we give to him is an excuse why we can't do what he's asked us to do or go in the direction that he's asked us to go or say what he's asked us to say. And you'll see that pattern in Jeremiah's response here in this book and what the Lord tells Jeremiah in response to that. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah chapter 1. As I mentioned, if you're on the email list for the church, Jeremiah is not the kind of book that I hear preached from frequently. It's a different kind of book. It's a book of Old Testament prophecy, and it's very interesting. Not everything in the book is in chronological order, uh, and it's also one of those books that there's a lot of things that if you're looking at it from the momentary perspective, there are certain things that can make you feel a, a bit sad because Jeremiah lived a very difficult life, and we'll, we'll be talking about that in, in just a few moments, but also in the coming weeks. But because it gets skipped... It, and because it's so valuable and there's so many useful things in it, I want us to take some time. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at highlights from the book of Jeremiah. It's a longer book, so we're not going to look at every single thing from the book, but we're going to look at some key sections from the book of Jeremiah. And one of the things that we see, just as kind of a theme when we wrap, around our, wrap our minds around the ideas that are communicated in this book, we'll, we'll see an example of what it looks like to be faithful to God in the midst of a faithless era, and as this chapter opens up, you have the Lord teaching Jeremiah to stop giving excuses when he asks him to do something. So Jeremiah chapter 1, starting with verse 1, this is what it states. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold... I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at the book of Jeremiah today and in the coming weeks as we study this together. And Lord, we recognize that we, very much like Jeremiah did, live in an era and in a context that surrounds us with plenty of people who ultimately just thumb their nose at you and think very little of what matters to you or, or what concerns you. Lord, it's very easy for us in the generation in which we live to be self-absorbed people. And yet you want us to be people who live for your honor and for your glory. And so, Lord, as we look through this portion of Scripture today and as we look through this book in the coming weeks, we pray that you'd prepare our minds and you'd prepare our hearts to understand it and to grow from it. And as we look at something that was written a considerable amount of time ago, Lord, we pray that we would recognize that the things that were taught here are things that, have, uh, that they very much apply to our lives right here and right now. So, Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to look at your word together today. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to become good at something? What does that look like? Or maybe I could say it this way. By what standard might someone actually be considered great at something? You know, what, is, like, what do we think is necessary for someone to actually be considered great at any particular thing. Typically, our standard for measuring the skill or the talent or the giftedness of any particular person, typically it comes down to the results that that person tends to produce. And if that's the kind of standard that we applied to Jeremiah, if we, if we judge what he's doing by the results that were produced from what he did, we might actually call him a failure. But we would be dead wrong if we did that. Jeremiah was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah beginning in uh, about the year 627 BC. So we're talking, you know, 2600 years ago, Jeremiah was prophesying in Judah. And when we look through this book, one of the things you'll discover about Jeremiah is that Jeremiah was faithful to the Lord's calling on his life. He was somebody that was courageous in the midst of persecution. Uh, Jeremiah was given a very thankless task when he was called by the Lord to proclaim the truth to a rebellious people that did not want to hear what the Lord had to say through him. But Jeremiah was faithful, and he continued to do what the Lord had called him to do. Uh, Jeremiah's message was mocked. Jeremiah was called a liar. Uh, Jeremiah's life was threatened. And the people of Judah did not repent of their sins. So again, judging by a worldly standard, you'd be able to look at Jeremiah and say, all right, it didn't produce, your ministry did not produce the results that you were hoping that it would produce. And if that was the standard by which we judge Jeremiah, we would say, all right, apparently you must have failed. But Jeremiah did not fail. Jeremiah was faithful to the task that the Lord had called him to complete. And God gave Jeremiah this, this task that we would say, at least in his context, was a thankless task. But it was a task to speak truth to a dying nation. And you have Jeremiah relying on the Lord to provide him the strength that he needed to accomplish that task. Later in Jeremiah's life, he was taken to Egypt, and it's believed that while he was there, he was stoned to death. And then he was buried in an unmarked grave because his message was so hated. His message was so despised by the people that he was initially communicating this to. But even though Jeremiah was despised by those people, even though he he died in a very unceremonious way and was buried in a very unceremonious manner, 
we can be confident that when Jeremiah entered into the presence of the Lord, he, he received a rich and warm welcome as one whom the Lord inspired to trust him, as one through whom the Lord spoke, and as one who used his life to try and point others to have a genuine faith in the Lord. And when we look at this portion of Scripture, we see this story all begin. We're given a tiny bit of background on who Jeremiah was. We're told a little bit about his family. And when we jump into verses 4 and 5, we're shown here something that God's plan for, for your life, for our lives, it's not something that just occurred to God. Look at how it's phrased in verses 4 and 5 here of this passage. So it's setting up what's happening in Jeremiah's life and what God wants to do through him. But we're told here, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Let's pause there for just a second. Is it reasonable to believe that the Lord has a plan for your life, or is that just fanciful thinking? You know, when you consider how many people live on the face of this earth, there are billions of people right now. I think the number last I heard is somewhere around 7 billion people living on the face of this earth right now. And there's also billions of people that have come before us. And so with that many people on this earth, is it too much to believe that the Lord would notice any one of us or ordain any one of us for a mission even before we were born? Is that too much to think? And yet when you look at this portion of Scripture, that's exactly what the Lord does. That's exactly how the Lord describes what he's about to do in Jeremiah's life and what he's been up to in Jeremiah's life. And the interesting thing is, this isn't the only time that the Lord speaks this way in his word through those he's called to write these things down. There's multiple places in Scripture where the Lord reveals the fact that he has been working in a person's life well before they were conscious of the fact that he was doing that. I like what it says in a couple spots, but I'll show you two of them. In Psalm 139, starting with verse 13, it says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So you have, you have David writing these things down as the Lord inspires him to write these things down. And he's reflecting on the fact that the Lord has been very intentional to craft his body and to craft his life, and that the Lord's been doing a work in him even before he experienced childbirth. I like what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And he's kind of, by the way, Paul in saying this here is actually drawing an allusion to what Jeremiah uh, describes here in, in Jeremiah chapter 1. There's a connection between these two passages. And, and in Galatians 1, you have the Apostle Paul saying, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And then Paul goes on to tell a little bit more about his story in coming to faith in the Lord. So in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 1, as the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the Lord tells Jeremiah that he knew him even before he was born. And the Lord expressed to Jeremiah the fact that he was intentionally formed in the womb, and set apart as one belonging to God, and appointed as a prophet to the nations. And it's fascinating here, when you look at these portions of Scripture, you know, in, in, in the midst of a generation that we live in right now that doesn't necessarily value life in the womb as it ought to, here you have the Lord describing how he intentionally forms a person 
how he sees a person and knows a person and even refers to that as a person during this time in the womb. And the Lord reveals to Jeremiah that he has a plan for him, and that he's working something out, and that this isn't something that just occurred to the Lord on the spot. This is something pre-planned. This is something foreordained because God is sovereign. God is in complete control. Nothing escapes his sight. He knows all things that have happened, and he knows every single thing that will happen. And he's steering the events of world history toward the day when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will rule and reign over the nations. And when you look at the, the, the thread throughout the scriptures, you can see the scriptures continually pointing to that fact. And by the grace of God, we have the privilege to be included in the plan that he's fulfilling among humanity. Because God doesn't do anything by accident. And it's interesting, when you look elsewhere in Scripture, it reveals to us that God's decision, specifically for us, that you would be born where you were born, and that you would be born when you were born, was not on accident, but it was so that you would have the greatest opportunity possible to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That was God's intention for you and for me. And if you know Christ... Please also know that the Lord's plan for your life is not something that just occurred to him. It's not something that all of a sudden he's like, all right, now I say, what should I do with them? Keep rescuing these people. What should I do with them? Quick, angels, ideas. The Lord's not like that. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life and in my life. Your salvation, your growth, your relationship with him, and the plan that he has for you in the midst of that is not an accident to him. It's been foreordained, it's been thought through, it's been planned out even before the foundation of the world. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That the Lord prepared beforehand that he was steering things in a course, in a way, for you and I to work in the areas and serve in the areas and be used of him in particular areas that he had foreordained, planning all sorts of things in just the right way, at just the right time, to make use of those he had called unto himself. And when you look at the kind of plan that the Lord carved out for Jeremiah specifically, as this portion of Scripture opens up, I imagine, particularly as we look through this book and begin to see some of the things that Jeremiah experiences, that this is not the kind of experience or life that you and I would ever choose for ourselves when we take a look at at what the Lord foreordained for Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah had the opportunity to speak to people who had no interest in what he had to say, and to do it for more than four decades And to have, you know, there's like two examples in the book of people that actually respond favorably to what Jeremiah had to say. And everybody else hated him. And to do that for decades. And as I was preparing for today and reading through, over the past month I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah. And uh, I was just thinking about that. And I, I can tell you... I remember, so when I, I, I have two stories about this I want to share with you today. I'll save the second one for a little bit. But I remember when I was a brand new pastor, for just one year, I served at a church out in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. I won't even say what town it was because I know we record the messages. I was in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't know Pennsylvania had middle of nowhere places until I lived there for a year. And I discovered when I began pastoring that church, I was their first full-time pastor in seven decades. Seventy years. They had not had a full-time pastor in 70 years. 
And um, I discovered very quickly when I began pastoring there that it was a very, very divided church. There, and it was divided into three camps. The two big camps were people that wanted to have a full-time pastor and people that didn't, so, and they would sit on opposite sides. And, um, and then there was a neutral Switzerland party in the church that didn't want to take a side and offend anybody. And it only took me a few weeks to learn this and discover this. And being a brand new, so I was very green. I was, I was right out of college. I was very green. And, uh, there are certain ways I think I'd look at that experience now, 20 years in, that I didn't have the experience to look at it that way then. And I remember one Sunday when I was standing up in front of that congregation after several months of serving in that context where there was all this conflict and infighting and I felt, you know, welcomed by some people and hated by other people. I thought, these people don't even know me. Like, how would they, why did they even call me to serve here? If they, like, if, I used to think all that stuff. I'm like, why would they hire me to serve as a pastor if, if this was such a divisive idea about having a full-time pastor here? Um, I remember one Sunday standing up there in front of the congregation, and it was like I went mute. I got a few minutes into my sermon, and I felt like I couldn't preach. Like, I just, I felt like I couldn't, I'm like, I'm trying to say something. I, I, me- I remember just standing there, and it was so awkward and weird, because I was like, I don't, like, I've run out. Like, I just felt like I ran out. Like, I, after so many, you know, I think I was probably about six months into that, I, that my, our time there, I was like, I, I don't know what else to say. And I ended the service awkwardly and early. And I was like, I think we're done. Let's sing. And, uh, and I was like, what on earth is going on with me? It was so discouraging and so depressing. And I'm talking about a six month period. And I felt, I felt like, I, I felt beat up. It was so, it was, I always joke with my wife. I was like, that was like pastor boot camp. You know, if there's like a, a boot camp for pastors, that year was my boot camp. And uh, I'm grateful for it in retrospect, but it's really hard going through it. I look at Jeremiah, 42 years. Now, so far, and I'm still, you know, just partway through my ministry, I've never had anyone threaten my life for what I've preached, yet, you know, there's still a lot of time, right? But I mean, when Jeremiah would preach, people wanted to kill him. And when Jeremiah would preach, people, like, I mean, how did he die? It's believed, traditionally, it's believed that he was stoned to death, buried in an unmarked grave because people hated this guy. As he would speak the word of God to the people of Judah, they did not want to hear it. And yet he continued, and he spoke. Would any of us choose that kind of life? Doesn't that sound so discouraging? Just spend your whole adult life trying to communicate a message to to people that don't want to hear it. And yet he plugged along. And people threatened him, and and people tried to intimidate him, and people tried to, you know, just ignore everything that he was saying, and yet Jeremiah continued. I don't imagine he would have chosen that experience, but that was what the Lord chose for him, and Jeremiah was faithful in it. And, And I will say this, that there's probably aspects of your life and my life that we wouldn't have chosen, right? There's certain features that you probably deal with or certain things that I deal with that we would look at and be like, yeah, if I had to pick, I'd make everything easy and nice. And yet that's not the reality of what life is like, is it? It's not always fun. It's not always easy. There's lots of difficult things. You may not have chosen every last detail of the plan that the Lord has ordained for your life. 
but with the strength that He provides, we can trust Him in the midst of it. And we can rest confident in the fact that His plan is perfect. And we can ask Him to help us to be faithful with whatever He asks us to do. It's not about measuring our lives by worldly standards of success. One of the things that we see from the example that we're given in this book is long-term faithfulness to God's call matters. And sometimes we don't even get to see the long-term results. We just remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of what He's called us to do. Because God's call and His plan for your life and my life is not something that just occurred to Him. He's working out a long-term goal that ultimately people would come to know His Son, Jesus Christ. Something else that we see in this portion of Scripture that I want to point out is this. God likes to use the most unlikely people to accomplish His plan through. Look at what it says here in verses 6 to 8. So you have Jeremiah responding to the Lord's calling on his life, and it says this, it says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Isn't that a great section of Scripture? I love that collection of verses there. I love verses 6 through 8, where you have Jeremiah trying to offer to God his excuses, his reasoning, why he can't do what the Lord's called him to do. And the Lord says, Jeremiah, knock it off. Knock it off. You're going to do what I told you to do, and I'm going to make it possible for you to do it. So knock it off. One of the most offensive things, so this is the other thing I was alluding to in a moment, a moment ago. One of the most offensive things that happened to me um, prior to becoming a pastor happened on New Year's Eve, my senior year of college. My soon-to-be wife and I were visiting her family up near Buffalo, New York, and uh, we were invited to another family's house. They had invited several families over to come and have dinner. We're sitting around the table, and uh, knowing that I was just about to finish college, one of the people that was invited to this meal, a woman, asked me, well, what do you plan to do once you finish college? I know that you and Andrea are getting married soon, and, and what's your plan at, you know, at that point? Uh, you must have something lined up. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm studying to, to be a pastor. I'm going to be a pastor. And uh, I already had you know, things essentially lined up for me to begin pastoring that first church. And she looked at me, and she kind of made this noise. And I can still kind of hear it in my head, and I bet you my wife can too. She kind of she made this noise, right? She goes, huh, like that. I was like, oh, great. You're making the mockery laugh at me here. And she goes, listen, and she looks around to the other adults with kind of like, do you ever see people when they're like saying something, they're like, am I right? Right? Am I right? Like, it was kind of like that. She, and this is what she said, looking for approval from everybody sitting around this big table. She goes, you're planning to be a pastor? And I was like, yes. And she's like, in your early 20s. I was like, correct. And she's like, <laughs> she goes, I could never sit under the ministry of somebody so young. You know, it's kind of like, am I right? Am I right? Like looking around for, and everyone's like, you just watch everybody like, oh no, like, uh, this lady needs to eat more food and stop talking. And she goes, and for that matter, I don't think, and I'm, I'm quoting this almost exact as best as my memory can remember. She goes, and for that matter, I don't think I could sit under the ministry of anyone under 25. And I was like, okay, are we going to like keep upping the age? Like, like, 
or 27 or 20. I'm like, well, this late, be quiet. You're ruining the last thing of this year. I have to listen to you yap about how like the Lord can't use me in, uh, in ministry as I'm trying to be obedient to him. I'm like, thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. I hope this year is wonderful and pivotal in your life and um, that you learn to speak less. Um, I didn't say it, but that's what I was thinking. And I, I was offended. You know, I was, I was bothered by it because, she, you know, there's a way you could have those conversations without being mocking. And I felt mocked. I, I just, at, in that moment, I felt mocked. I felt insulted. It was in front of a large group of people. And it just kind of made me feel embarrassed because she was disparaging me as she mocked my age. And I was like, huh. I was like, okay, I don't know. I don't, some people think it's good when you say yes to the Lord. Now, naturally speaking, let's admit, there are certain qualifications that we tend to look for in leaders and certain things that are certain people that we expect God to be doing his work through. And if we list those qualifications, we might say things like, all right, well, maybe we do expect them to be older, but not too old, right? Older, but not too old. Because if you get too old, how could the Lord use you if you get too old, right? Or how about this? We expect them to be social, but not obnoxious. You know, be social, but don't be obnoxious. There's a line there, right? Or how about this? We want them to be educated, but not too academic, because if your head's too much in the books, then you can't be social. Or gregarious, but not silly. Like if you're, you could, you could joke, but don't be silly, right? Or of good physical stature, but not so good that you become vain, right? And like we have all these qualifications and, you know, people of character, but not so holy that you seem inaccessible, right? And it's like we have all these lists and all these qualifications, and I think sometimes we have this image in our mind that the Lord might only prefer to use people who are perfect in every category, and that that's who the Lord wants to use in this world. Everyone that's just the perfect age, just the perfect credentials, just the perfect personality, no rough edges here or there, like just right in all those categories, and even somebody that looks just right. And we think, all right, that's who the Lord wants to use. They gotta, they gotta fit all those categories, but not be too far in one direction or another. And then when you look at what the scripture actually teaches us, we discover that the Lord delights to use unlikely people like you and me. He apparently loves it because he does it over and over and over and over again in every book of Scripture. He delights to use unlikely people like you and me. And when the Lord spoke to Jeremiah here in this portion of Scripture, Jeremiah was a young man. Now, some people think maybe Jeremiah was a teenager. Some people think maybe he was as old as 30, based on the fact that he was serving as a priest and he had to be 30. And so some people debate how old he was. But in Jeremiah's own words, he describes himself as being young. So Jeremiah's a young man. We don't know exactly necessarily what age he may have been. But as the Lord revealed his plan for Jeremiah's life, how does Jeremiah initially respond? What's his response? You have Jeremiah giving God excuses, reasons why God can't use him. You know, he starts claiming, Lord, I am not sufficient for this task that you're calling me to. I can't do this. Let me list my reasons. I'm too young. I'm not a great speaker. Lord, you can't use somebody like me. You've got to use somebody that by the world standards is much more 
qualified than somebody like me. So you have Jeremiah trying to use his youth as a disqualifying factor, and he tries to convince God that his inexperience with public speaking makes him a bad choice for this task. Now, does God have any time for that? How does God respond to Jeremiah? As Jeremiah is giving God excuses in this moment, God effectively tells him, Jeremiah, stop. Just stop. Let me just stop you right there. Stop whining. Stop giving excuses. If I tell you to do something, you're going to do it. If I point you in a direction, you're going to walk in it. If I give you words to say, you're going to speak them. I'm not asking you to do this in your strength. That's what effectively we begin to learn. The Lord's not asking him to do this in his own natural strength. He's saying, I will make you fit for the task that I've called you to do. It's the same message that the Scripture preaches to you and to me as well. God is not asking us to rely on our own natural strength to do what he calls us to do. He's asking us to rely on him and his strength. And this was a lesson that young Jeremiah was about to learn. And I'm sure that we could appreciate that as Jeremiah was trying to learn this lesson, that he would certainly be afraid. And the Lord recognizes that Jeremiah is afraid. In fact, the, Lord, the way the Lord says it in verse 8, he's like, look, don't be afraid of them. He, he sees into his mind. He sees into his heart. He's like, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. But we can understand someone like Jeremiah or someone like us being afraid if the Lord commissions us to a task such as this, right? Jeremiah was afraid of what people might say to him. He was afraid of what people might do to him or how they might react to him. Again, the Lord knew Jeremiah's heart, and he told him he did not need to be afraid, that he would be there with him in the midst of all of this, that he would deliver him. And basically, whether Jeremiah was afraid or not, the Lord was calling him to remain faithful. And I love seeing that message play out here in this particular context. Again, it's not the only time in Scripture that it's referenced. I, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul took a lot of inspiration and a lot of encouragement from Jeremiah's experience, because let me show you another thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, you have the Apostle Paul going into Corinth. Corinth was known as a very wicked city, not the type of place that when you would go to, you would expect people to be very receptive to the gospel message. And so you have the Apostle Paul convinced that the Lord wants him to go and to preach and to serve there, but also recognizing, this might not go as well as I hope. The response people give me might not be exactly how I hoped it would be. Like, they might hurt me here. They might kill. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, during the course of his ministry, was attacked multiple times. But here in 1 Corinthians 2, this is how Paul summarizes what it was like for him as he first came to the Corinthians. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, in, or did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he's saying, like, I'm not coming to you as like some sort of eloquent speaker, some sort of person that is, you know, just like speaking from the loftiest heights of, of, of academics. He said, I'm not, I didn't speak to you in a lofty way. Verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, like shaking. He was so nervous. Do you ever have to speak and have your voice quiver? I imagine that that's what Paul's speaking was like, at least initially, to this group of people. And probably some of the folks reading this initially were like, yeah, I remember when he first spoke. He seemed really nervous, right? 
He says, and my speech and my message were not, with pl- were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying, I don't want your faith to rest in the fact that I seem super qualified and smart and eloquent. Saying your faith should not be in me, your faith should not be in the messenger, but the one in or through whom the message is given, right? Or by whom the message is given, I guess I should say. You know, your faith should be in Jesus Christ, the one who has commissioned me for this task. And Paul's saying, when I came to you, I didn't come to you as some super saint. I came to you as somebody that was scared to death. And yet the Lord still used someone who was scared to death because God likes to use unlikely people for tasks like what He used Paul for, like what He used Jeremiah for, like what He wants to use you and me for. And you don't have to answer this out loud, but I do want you to answer this in your mind, in your head. Are you afraid of what God has called you to do? Like, Do you have a sense of what God has called you to do? And does it scare you to be obedient to him in his leading? Like, do, Does there seem like there might be a series of consequences that you're afraid of? Or maybe you're afraid of how people might respond to you, or some of the things that Paul described or Jeremiah described might be things that you know, maybe some of us can identify with. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. These are very natural responses. It's very understandable if that's how you feel. It's okay, in, in a sense, if, if you feel that way. But I will say this, you're allowed to feel that way, but don't let your emotions paralyze you or prevent you from taking the steps of faith that the Lord prepared beforehand for you to take. You're allowed to be fearful, you're allowed to be scared, but keep walking forward anyway. Keep doing whatever the Lord, keep being faithful to whatever God's called you to do, to glorify Jesus Christ in your context, in your day-to-day life, even if you're scared to do it. Don't let fear be the excuse that prevents you from using the five minutes you're given on this earth for Christ's glory. And there's one other thing that the scripture from Jeremiah points out to us, and that's this. The Lord's called us to be faithful stewards of the authority He entrusts to us. He invites us to be faithful in the context He's placed us in. Look at verses 9 and 10 as the Lord speaks these things to Jeremiah, and we can apply these truths to our lives as well. But the way it says it is this. It says, Then the Lord put his hand, or put out his hand, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, or to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So the words here that Jeremiah would speak to the people, the Scripture reveals to us, they would not just be his own words. His calling wasn't to share his own ideas or opinions. His calling wasn't just to echo the ideas or the ideals of the generation that he was living in the midst of for the applause of men. The Lord reached out and touched Jeremiah's mouth, and this act demonstrated the fact that the words Jeremiah spoke would be words that came from God. The words of God would be placed in Jeremiah's mouth. Jeremiah would speak what the Lord revealed to him to speak. And the Lord told Jeremiah that he was being set over nations and kingdoms to both destroy and to build. Jeremiah was being called by the Lord to be a faithful steward of what the Lord had placed under his oversight. That task wasn't going to be fun. 
It wasn't going to be easy, but it was the task that the Lord had given him, a task that involved plucking up, a task that involved breaking down, destroying, overthrowing. Those are the words that the Lord describes Jeremiah's task as including, and you can understand that that wouldn't naturally sound quite as delightful as the other aspects of building and planting, but it was all part of what the Lord had called Jeremiah to do. His ministry would have aspects of all of these things, tearing down and building up. That culture, the culture of Judah that Jeremiah was preaching to, that he was communicating God's will to, that culture was far from the Lord. They had gone very far from the Lord. The people were worshiping false gods. Uh, The people were even sacrificing their children to these false gods, thinking that that would somehow incur the favor of these false gods. They showed almost no interest in the word of God or the will of God or the heart of God. And Jeremiah was about to preach a message to this group of people with their stone hearts, with their rejection of God, and he was going to expose all of that. He was going to confront it head on. And it would offend them, and it would irritate them, but it would be true, and it would be accurate. Now, let's be honest for a second here. Because this is very much like our own experience with the Lord. I, I believe, and I know that Scripture states this for us, that the message of the gospel, it offends us before it delights us. And what I mean by that is this. Before we experience the depth of the joy of being rescued and redeemed and saved and forgiven by Jesus Christ, we need to first wrestle with the state we were in when he found us. The Bible teaches us that when Christ came for us, we were enemies of God. That's how Scripture describes us. Not ambivalent to God, enemies of God. That we were chained to our sin, that we were in bondage to it. That we were under the righteous wrath of God that we were condemned to an eternity of being separated from the Lord in a place of conscious, eternal torment that the Scriptures refer to as hell. And I don't see how telling someone that they're presently destined for hell can't be anything but offensive. I think it's meant to be offensive before it sounds delightful in the sense that the Lord has done something about that condition. I don't think you're ever going to come to a spot where you recognize a need for a Savior until you admit the problem that you were in the midst of. So that's why I say I think the gospel offends us before it delights us. When I think about this this concept of the fact that at one point I was destined to be under the wrath of God for all eternity, that I was under condemnation and that I deserved it, that I was chained to my own sin and couldn't do anything about it, and that when I stood before the Lord, I was going to stand before Him as one who was condemned, not loved, not welcomed into His presence for all eternity, that that was my future unless the Lord did something about it? That's offensive. It's true, but it's offensive because we don't like to acknowledge things like that. But the truth is, unless we acknowledge that, we're never going to come to a spot where we say, no, wait a second, well, what's my other option? Like, that doesn't sound like a good option. 
Well, the other option is this. The Lord looks at us with compassion and he says, there's only one option that can fix this, and that's if I send my son, Jesus Christ. And he comes to this earth and he lives the perfect life you could never live. And he satisfies my wrath by taking it upon himself by dying on a cross. And then he rises from the grave to defeat sin's power that currently has you changed or chained. And he defeats Satan, and he defeats death, and then he looks at you and he says, now, the work's been done for you. You couldn't do any of this work because you were locked in your sin and you were a complete offense to your Creator. The work's been done for you. All you have to do is trust in me, receive the gift of forgiveness. You will be rescued, you will be redeemed, you will be ushered into my presence for all eternity. That's the option the Lord gives to us. Stay in the stuck condition we were in or accept his opportunity, to, his, his offer to rescue us through Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel, I think, intentionally offends first before it delights us. Because now I look at that message and I'm like, Lord, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Thank you for telling me what I didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear most. So that I, by your grace, by you opening my eyes to see it, finally recognized how much I need you. How much I needed salvation through Jesus Christ, that I had no other option. As Jeremiah was preaching this message during the course of his generation, as he was communicating with the Lord, had told him to communicate. He was doing so to people that did not want to hear what he was saying, but what he was saying was true and it was accurate. And people hated him for it because what he said offended them. It wasn't what they wanted to hear, but it was true. I will say this as we finish up this morning and prepare our hearts to take communion together. If you have never received the forgiveness for sin that Jesus Christ offers, Christ invites you to receive that forgiveness through faith in Him today. There's absolutely no good reason to wait a second longer. If you recognize at this point your need for salvation through Christ, I'd encourage you to trust in Him today and receive that as a gift. You need it. I need it. We all need it. Every single person on this planet needs it. Don't wait an extra second. Don't delay that. Trust in Christ. Receive His forgiveness and redemption. If you have received forgiveness and new life through faith in Jesus Christ, He invites you to stop giving Him excuses. Because His Word shows time and time again through various examples, one being Jeremiah, that he has a distinct and a specific plan for your life. That he will use you even if you aren't the most ideal candidate by this world's standards. And he will enable you to rely on his strength day by day to remain faithful to the mission that he's entrusted to you. Again, during the brief few decades that you get on this planet. God wants you, but he doesn't want your excuses. And even if you're still afraid of what he wants to do in your life, he invites you to trust him anyway. Don't waste the opportunity to do so. Prior to Christ being crucified, prior to his crucifixion, prior to his resurrection, he got together with his disciples and he said, I'm going to show you something here. I want you to have something that's going to remind you of what I'm about to do for you. 
And he gave his disciples bread, gave them the wine, and he invited them to recognize in these elements a memorial of what he's accomplished on our behalf. And so in just a moment, we're, we're going to partake of communion together. We're going to partake of the bread, reminding us of the body of Christ, which was given for us on the cross to pay for our sin. We're going to be partaking of the juice together, reminding us of the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf, ushering in the new covenant, giving us the privilege to be cleansed of our sin. Jesus wants us to remember what he paid for us to be rescued and redeemed. And so before we partake of this together, we're going to just pause for a moment just to pray silently between us and the Lord. And I'd encourage you, if you've never come to a spot where you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, to do so in that moment of prayer. And if you have trusted in Christ, ask Him to show you what He wants you to see. If you know that there's something in your life you need to confess of and repent of before Him, do that as well. But ask Him to open your eyes to what He wants you to see and ask Him to give you the courage to pursue what He wants you to pursue. Let's pause for a moment of silent prayer together, then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll partake of communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Lord, you remind us in your word that when we partake of communion, we're to acknowledge who you are and what you have done. So Lord, we do so today, not in a flippant way, but in a grateful way, because we were in a spot that we couldn't fix. We were in a spot that required your intervention because we were lost and we were dead. And with compassion, you looked at us and you said that you would be the remedy because you are the only one who could fix the mess that we were in. You came to this earth, walked among us, never sinning, never doing anything wrong, investing in the lives of all sorts of people, people with different backgrounds, people with different personalities, raising up men and women who would proclaim the truth of your gospel in the midst of their generation and and pass that truth along to those that came after them. And here we are generations, many generations later, giving you praise because we've had the privilege to hear these truths from those who came before us, from your word which you passed down to us intentionally. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we're sinners in need of a Savior and that you're the only remedy. And Lord, as we partake of the bread, we pray that we would be mindful of your body. We pray, Lord, that as we partake of the juice, that we would be mindful of your blood that was shed on our behalf. Lord, we invite you into our lives. We pray that you would forgive us of our sin, cleanse us of unrighteousness, and help us to walk with you by faith 
in every context that you place us in. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I'll invite our ushers to come. As the ushers pass around the bread, we'd invite you to hold on to it and then we'll all partake together. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him.
Likewise, after the meal, our Lord took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Lord, we recognize that we don't deserve your goodness and your kindness and your mercy, but based on your loving nature, based on your compassion, you chose to show us those things just the same. So Lord, we're grateful for the blessing of having the privilege to know you. We pray, Lord, that by your grace, our faith in you would be strong each and every day. And we pray, Lord, that we would welcome your intervention in our lives as we seek to be men and women who reflect your loving heart and who are faithful to the mission that you've called us to be faithful to, to proclaim your gospel, to make disciples of all nations. Lord, we're grateful again for the privilege to walk with you in the context that you've blessed us with, and we commit ourselves to you today. Likewise, Lord, we pray that as we finish out our time here this morning by taking this offering, we pray that we would glorify you in it as we share from what you've blessed us with. And Lord, as we sing together, we pray that the words that we sing would bring honor and glory to your, to your name and would be a blessing to you as we seek to reflect our love toward you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Let's stand together.